Well, we left Thursday morning at 5 a.m. to head to Plains, Montana. It was me and Ethan and Noah. And then the next day we turned around and came back, but it was just me and Ethan. We left Noah in Plains. He's at Camp Bighorn this summer. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be a great summer for him. So pray for him. Uh, and then in the process of coming back, I get a text from my wife that says, Abby's not going to be here when you get home. She and some of the speech and debate club are going down to catch Ravi Zacharias speak. And I became insanely jealous because Ravi Zacharias is one of my favorite. He's top three theologians, philosophers that have impacted my life personally. Uh, right up there with Francis Schaeffer for me. Um, Ravi has been integral in terms of what God has done in my life and shaping who I am as a, as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. And so uh, really jealous of my uh, almost 12-year-old daughter getting to go see Ravi in, in Seattle. And, um, which reminds me, you guys need to be asking me questions. Did I mention that earlier? That the, the Q&A is coming, right? So connect card, question. Give me some fodder for the coming weeks, please. Uh, and, and I say that because there's nobody who does Q&A better than Ravi Zacharias. Really, I mean, this, this is the most masterfully done apologetics um, interaction I've ever seen anybody do. Because not only is he super smart, laser focused, but he is the most polite, um, affirming, uh, just in terms of his interaction with people, even hostile questioners, he is really gentle. And, and it's just this incredible spiritual judo sometimes that he does on people that suddenly they're on their back and they don't even know what happened to them. But he's so polite and they're thanking him for putting them on their back. It's crazy. It's just like, I want to be that guy, right? Uh, if you've never read Ravi, if you've never listened to Ravi, can I just recommend that you do that this week? Uh, and I wanted to start this morning with an excerpt from one of Ravi's book, the book that changed my direction as a young Christian that uh, opened my eyes to apologetics for the first time. It's called Can Man Live Without God? It's a phenomenal book and I highly recommend it. In, in, in his book, he tells a story. He's quoting another author. He says, there's a ma- magnificent story in Mary Chapin's book. The book is entitled, Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. And he tells a story. He says, the book told of the sufferings of the true church in Yugoslavia, where so much wrong had been perpetrated by the politicized ecclesiastical hierarchy. That which has gone on in the name of Christ there for the enriching and empowering of corrupt church officials has been a terrible affront to decency. One day, an evangelist by the name of Yaakov arrived at a certain village And he commensurated with an elderly man there named Zimmerman on the tragedies that that they had experienced. And and they talked together. And as they talked, uh, Yaakov talked to Zimmerman about the love of Christ. And Zimmerman abruptly interrupted Yaakov and told him he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. Go away. Leave me alone. And he reminded this young evangelist of the dreadful history of the church in that town, a history replete with plundering and exploiting and indeed even killing innocent people. He said, my own nephew was killed by them and he was angry and he rebuffed any, uh, any effort on Yaakov's part to talk about Christ. He said, they wear those elaborate coats and those caps and those crosses, he said, signifying some heavenly commission, but their evil designs and their lives, I cannot ignore. 
Yaakov, looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his line of thinking, said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I was to steal your coat. I put it on, and then I broke into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them when they arrived at your house to accuse you of breaking into the bank? Well, I would deny it, said Simmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say. This analogy bothered Simmerman greatly, and he told Yaakov to leave his home. Now, Yaakov was uh, determined, and he continued to return to the village periodically, simply with the agenda to befriend Simmerman, to encourage him, to share the love of Christ with him. And finally, one day, Simmerman asked, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and of trust in the work of Jesus and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. And Simmerman there bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and his eyes full of tears. And he surrendered his life to Christ. And as he rose to his feet, he embraced Yaakov and he said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered, you wear his coat very well. I have a question for you this morning. When you are in the world, when you're interacting with the day-to-day of life, and you're not gathered among the people of God in this kind of exclusive moment where we're all together focused on the Lord and his presence here. When you're out there, whose coat are you wearing? Who do you look like in the eyes of lost people? Would they mistake you for Jesus? Paul would use, instead of a coat, smell as his illustration in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says this, he says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. But then he makes this distinction. He says, to one we're the fragrance of of death unto death and to to another we're the fragrance of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. This was their testimony, that they smelled like Jesus. And to those who are coming to life, who the Spirit was working on and drawing, they smelled like life. And to those who are rejecting God and, and committed to their sins and not wanting to have anything to do with the living God, they smelled like death. What do you smell like when you're in the world? Dealing with people who don't know Christ. Are you life to those who are coming to life? Are you death to those who are perishing? Or do you just smell like everybody else? Do you smell like everybody else? This is an issue of your personal testimony. Not just how you initially came to faith in Jesus Christ, but how Christ has changed you since then and how he's changing you even now. What is your testimony. That's the question before us this morning. I want you to hold on to that idea as we explore our passage in 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. Hold on to this idea of testimony. Let's look at the text together. And uh, if you have the YouVersion app on your Bible, you can follow along in my notes there in the YouVersion in the events. 
under the, that app. There's a little treat there for you as well. So um, you found it. Somebody found it. Good. First John 5. Now I've lost you. Everybody's going to the YouVersion app and go, what did he do? Um, let's look at the text. First John 5, 1 through 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever does not believe, or whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's go back to verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever's been born of him. That's a tall order. If you love God, you're gonna love his people. Man, I don't know. They're pretty dysfunctional. Well, welcome to Emmaus Road. We put the fun in dysfunctional at Emmaus Road. This is the simplest way to kind of summarize the Christian faith. Faith in Jesus means being born again. It's this idea of regeneration. And so again, John's hinting at what we call the ordo salutis. It's the order of salvation. It's true. No one can seek God on our own. But hear me, brothers, listen, we're not on our own. We're not on our own. The fact that we can't seek God doesn't mean that we can't respond willingly to the God who's actively seeking us. And he's given us his Holy Spirit and he's given us a gospel appeal. And, and Paul says to Timothy, he's given us his word, which is sufficient to lead one unto salvation. And so God takes the initiative and, and we know from his word and what he's revealed uh, through his word, through the gospel, through the person of Jesus, that his initiative is sufficient, right? And we affirm no one can fulfill the demands of the law. You can't work yourself into a relationship with God. Rather, we humble ourselves and admit that we can never be good enough. And we put our faith in the one who fulfilled the law in our place. So we agree with the Apostle John, who taught that God sent the gospel. He said in John 20, 31, you, that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing, you would have life in his name. Paul would say it this way, 2 Corinthians three sixteen, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away, right? Galatians three twenty six, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Given that reality, what do we make of verse one in this chapter? Anyone who is presently believing in Christ 
has in the past been born of or begotten of God. So John is concerned with describing the consequences here of the new birth. So, so the question is, some people will ask, well, how do I know that a regeneration has occurred? How do I know if someone's been born again? And the answer is, well, so let me just give you the summation of everything we've looked at so far in 1 John. That person will not habitually practice sin. We know that chapter 3 and chapter 5. That person will practice righteousness. Back in chapter 2, we saw that. That person's going to love the brethren. They're going to love the body of Christ chapter four. That person who's been born again is going to believe in Christ. That person is going to overcome the world. We just read that verse four. And John's point is simply that these activities are the evidence of a new birth and of true salvation. The absence of these things is evidence that regeneration has not taken place. And so he makes this point. Not because John wants to demonstrate a cause and effect relationship between faith and regeneration, but because John's trying to give the church a litmus test by which to discern true and false believers. You tracking with that? Okay, the whole book is filled with these litmus tests. If then, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then this thing is true of you. And if this thing's not true of you, then your claim to be a follower of Jesus is not true. It's just like a dozen or 15 of those litmus tests right here in this one book. And he goes on, he says, by this, verse two, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep, keep his commandments, we obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I love this, this little hidden we know, right? That's an epistemological statement. Epistemology is a study of philosophy that deals with uh, what do we know? Can we know things for certain? Do we know anything for certain? I can't believe there are people who devote their whole life to that one little sliver of philosophy. It's crazy to me, right? And then they end up in the place where they'll say to their college students who are under them in the, in the classroom, so you can't really know anything for certain. It's like, why are we paying you, right? <laughs> why, why are we paying your salary with our tuition, right? And, and I just tell our college students all the time, I said, just respectfully raise your hand. You don't have to get aggressive. Just say, excuse me, professor, how do you know that? And are you certain? See, that person, when they say you can't know anything for certain, is making a certain knowledge claim, aren't they? So they're violating their own belief system. It's inconsistent. It doesn't make any sense. So, so we're told that there are some things you can know, and there are some things you can know for certain. And then verse 2 here is just an inversion of the former statements, right? Do you love God? You say you love God? Okay, then, then love the church. And then, then he says, so now it's, do you love the church? Do you love the people of God? Okay, then clearly you love God. It flows both ways. If you love him, you'll obey him. And so the Christian's relationship uh, to the Old Testament law has fundamentally changed. It's fundamentally changed. Whereas in the Old Covenant, people were constricted by this system of rules and regulations, and the Israelites wrongly thought, man, if we just do them good enough, we can work our way to God. And, and now he's saying, listen, that was never the purpose. The purpose was to show you that you couldn't get to God that way. What does Galatians 3.24 say? The law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to show us you can never be good enough. And so think of it this way. When you go to the airport and you get in that plane, you, you are able to exceed the law of gravity. The law of gravity didn't go away. But if you're trying to get to Houston and you just go out in your front yard and you start flapping your arms, you're never going to get to Houston. Okay, let me just try it. I'll, I'll come by with the, with the camera phone and just film you for about five minutes and, and we'll have a good laugh as it goes all over social media. You can never exceed the law of gravity under your own power. 
You're always going to need something else. And when you get in the plane, now you're, the law of gravity didn't go away, did it? It's still there. But as long as you stay in the plane, you can supersede because there are laws of thrust and aerodynamics that are in play now. Okay? When you come to Christ, the Old Testament law didn't go away, but we're above. We're soaring above in the spirit. It's not a beneath. It's above. Okay? And so we're not called to a lower morality, a lower obedience. We're called to a higher morality, a higher obedience, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, lives in us. And his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that a great line? And we talk about it this way. Say we love God, we love people, we live generously. One of these days I'm going to stop and let you guys finish that mantra. Love God, love people, live generously. Verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? This is, uh, we call this perseverance or preservation of the saints, uh, being born of God, overcoming the world. Now, I grew up in the Southern Baptist church in the Bible belt. And so I heard the phrase that we use there a lot was once saved, always saved, which kind of degenerated into this place where what that really meant was if you were nine years old and you walked down the aisle and you, and you signed a card, then you were in the club and then you could go live like hell until you got to heaven. That's pretty common in, in the culture I grew up in. But it's not what the scripture says. Salvation is not just a get out of hell free card. Salvation is an invitation to become more like Jesus in absolutely every way, right? So this idea of easy believism, like all I had to do was say a prayer and now I can just do what I want because God has forgiven me and that's permission to sin. That's foreign to the scriptures. That's foreign to the New Testament. That's crazy. We don't, we don't believe that. And, and we don't believe that a person loses their salvation. That's not the nature of salvation. Let me, just on the flip side of that, let me give you just a couple of verses here. Um, talk about uh, the nature of what we've received, Ephesians 1. If you stick around for a few more weeks, we'll get to Ephesians 1. And we'll, we'll go in more depth here. But in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's an amazing passage. When you begin to study this and see the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person who's placed their faith in Jesus for salvation, it really becomes quite impossible to accept any notion that a truly saved person who in in the spirit has been justified, is now being sanctified, is filled with the spirit and sealed by the spirit, could possibly lose his or her salvation. Eternal life is this crazy thing. Eternal means forever, and you have eternal life. So God doesn't, doesn't take that back, right? Salvation is a package deal. Paul would say it this way in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Stop. Coffee mug verse right? Coffee mug verse. All things work together for good. Read the whole verse. Goodness sake. We know for that those who love God, now that's a particular subset of humanity, isn't it? Those who love God. Then all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those that he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he also glorified. In God's perspective, the people that come to salvation that he justifies, he's also glorified. He sees the end from the beginning. There's no like, oh, well, you got to, you, you made like a 75% on the sanctification thing, but we're throwing you out because the curve's a little higher. And so sorry, you didn't quite make the cut. It's a done deal. It's a package deal, right? And so the Greek word that we translate to dwell, the spirit dwelling, taking up residence, it speaks of a permanent dwelling. And when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, he brought all his baggage. He brought his posters. Like he's, he's like going to put them up on the wall. Like he's staying. He moved in to live in your home. He didn't come for a visit, not even a nice long one. He came to stay. And that's the crazy thing about eternal life. It's eternal. You're forever changed. Let's keep going. Verse 6. This is he, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So let me just unpack that for you really quickly. Water speaks of the physical birth of Jesus. He was fully human. He was born of a virgin, fully human. Okay, water, important part of that. Uh, The blood speaks of the physical death of Jesus. 100% man, he died on the cross, he shed his blood for humanity. And we call that his atoning sacrifice. John's word, last week we looked at propitiation. And so the testimony of the three, the water, the blood, and the spirit, there's an order and a chronology to this. Jesus' incarnation, his physical birth, right? The perfect, sinless life now ending on a cross shedding his blood for humanity, and then that new covenant opening the door for the spirit to come and dwell in the believer by faith, regenerating and sanctifying that individual. The water, the blood, and the spirit, these three testify to the reality that Jesus has come, that he's the son of God. We have him being born in the world, dying for the sins of mankind, and then the spirit coming to indwell the believer. Okay, verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men, and that's, that's dandy, but God's testimony is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. And whoever believes in the son, the son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God's made him out to be a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. May I just say to you, that's one thing you definitely don't want to hear God say to you when you stand before him. You're a liar. You didn't believe my testimony about my son. You don't want to be that person, right? Matthew 3, what did, what did the father say about the son in Matthew 3? Jesus came from Galilee, and he went down to the Jordan River where John was baptizing, and he said, I need you to baptize me, right? And John freaks out and goes, no way. You're the lamb of God. I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me, right? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And then when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony of the Father concerning the son. And you don't want to be making God a liar by not believing his testimony about his son. Another way you can make God out to be a liar, and we've already talked about this, is when one's personal testimony is in direct contrast 
to that claim to know Jesus. You could be mouthing the words, I'm a follower of Jesus, but then your own testimony where the Spirit's supposed to be at work in your life doesn't seem to line up with the words that you're saying about being a follower of Jesus. And this is why your personal testimony is so important. So the little boy said, Daddy, did, did Grandpa make you go to Sunday school and church every Sunday when you were my age? And the father said, he sure did. We went every Sunday. And the little boy just stood there looking sad, and he said, well, probably won't do me any good either. That daddy was misrepresenting God. And it was impacting the heart of the little boy. People can tell when you're faking. They know when you're faking it. Especially your own kids, by the way. Those of you who are parents. Just food for thought. What is your testimony? How do others see you? And when you claim, your mouth is saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, what does your life say? Is it substantiating that claim? Or is it, is it divergent from that claim? And then we wrap up the, the last two verses here, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And so the church, this group of believers is a key part of God's testimony in the world. God gave us, it's plural. He gave us, us, that's bad grammar, but he did right? Love it or hate it, doesn't matter. He gave us to one another, right? And he gave us our love for the lost, and that's the proclamation of the gospel. We encourage one another as the saints, as the people of God, and then we go out into the world and proclaim the gospel to those who don't know him. I I love this story I read this week. Um, when, When native converts of the island of Madagascar used to present themselves for baptism, it was often asked of them, what is it first led you to be, even begin to think about becoming a Christian? How did that begin? And usually the answer was uh, that, that the changed conduct of others who had become Christians was the first thing that arrested their attention. This was the testimony of, of several people. I knew that man to be a thief. That person was a drunkard. That person was cruel and unkind to his family. And now they are all changed. That thief is now an honest man. That drunkard is sober and respectable. This person is gentle and kind in his home. There must be something to a faith that can work so much change in the lives of people, these converts would say as they came to be baptized. And that's astounding. That's awesome to me. My question to you is, can people see the change that Jesus is working into your life? Can they see that change? What, what's different about you since you first put your faith in Jesus Christ? What's different about you? As we've journeyed through this book of 1 John, as we wrap up next week, have, have you been, just in your mind, running your life through the grid of these litmus tests? I hope that you have. I hope that you have taken the time to go, oh, well, if I say I love God and I don't love the brothers, then I don't really love God. I really can't stand church people. That's a problem, right? I hope that you've been doing that kind of thing, just, just wrestling with these truths, I hope that you will continue to do that because scripture calls us to continually examine our own lives in the light of scripture and to constantly look at what is the spirit doing and how can we walk in more obedience? Because if you and I are going to be effective for the kingdom of God, we need to be a people who embrace and proclaim the testimony of God that Jesus came to save sinners. 
and whose lives demonstrate and validate that testimony. We have to be that kind of people or we won't have any validity in the world's eyes if our lives are not aligned with the truth of what we say we believe. And one of the most effective tools you have in your arsenal as an evangelist, did you know that you're an evangelist? Evangel is the the good news, right? And that you're supposed to tell the good news. You're an evangelist. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but you're all called to evangelize. And as you interact with people who don't yet know Jesus, one of the most powerful tools in your arsenal is your personal testimony. Did you realize that? It's a powerful tool. In the day of relativism, everybody says, well, that's great for you, but this is my deal. Right? We have to challenge people to wrestle with objective truth. We, we really do. And I don't want to diminish that in any way. But we also have to perpetuate spiritual judo, just like Ravi, like I was saying earlier. You use your opponent's weight against him and say, well, I'm not really into that. This is the thing that, that, that affects my life over here. And, and then you say, well, let me tell you about Jesus and how he's changed me. Because in a, in a culture of relativism, in a culture that loves narrative and story, uh, people will respect the story of change in you, especially if they see it firsthand especially if they see it firsthand. They have to respect that, that there's a change happening in you that's not something that you are making happen. It's something supernatural. And if you have a testimony, you share it. And so I'll just give you this tool as we wrap up this morning. Before Jesus, before we came to Jesus, you and I were ugly, just ugly. U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, you ugly. Let me tell you what ugly stands for. Unforgiven, glorifying self, living in sin, and yearning for something more. We're ugly, ugly. What I want you to do with this is go home, take ugly, and then take the next part I'm going to give you. And just write one or two sentences for each letter. How were you ugly? How are you unforgiven? What does that mean in your former life? How did you glorify yourself? How were you living in sin? How did you know deep in your heart you were yearning for something more? How was that manifesting in you? Because when you share your testimony, just use ugly. I was ugly, man. Let me just tell you how ugly my life was. It's powerful. And then this is what you do. You flip the script and you say, now that Jesus has intervened in my life, I'm clean. I'm clean. I'm cleansed by the blood. I'm loved beyond measure. I'm excited to grow. I'm adopted as a child of God. I'm a new creation. Once I was ugly. Oh, you have no idea. Now, this is me telling you right now. This is your pastor. I was ugly. And the, the, most, uh, the ugliest people are the ones who are ugly but think that they're really good looking. And that was me. Boy, I just thought I was hot to trot and I was actually really ugly. And you feel really bad for those folks. You go, man, that guy has no idea how ugly he is, right? So that was my life. That was my life. I was so jacked up in sin. And then God came in and now I'm clean. Cleansed by the blood, love beyond measure, excited to grow, adopted as a child of God, a new creation. Again, my notes are in the YouVersion app under the events. If you want this, if you want my slides, if you want my notes, email me this week. I'm happy to send them to you. But I want you to go home. I want you to wrestle with ugly and clean. And just write a couple, one to two sentences about each one. Hone that. Wrestle through it. Shape that. And you know what? It would be a good place for some of you to begin to practice. Write it out and put it on social media. 
But before Jesus, my life was ugly. Let me just tell you how ugly my life was. Boom, 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 boom. Now that Jesus has come into my life, I've been, I've been made clean. Man, I'm so excited to grow. I'm, I'm, an, I'm cleansed by the blood. I'm loved beyond measure. Just go down the list. Just tell people how that's manifest in your life. That's a good first step because you don't have to actually be in the room with another person going, they're going to reject me. Just start, start with a baby step, baby step, baby step. Be clear about how ugly your life was apart from Jesus and celebrate how clean he's made you by washing you in the blood. On the 100th anniversary of the arrivals of missionaries in Zaire, Christians gathered to celebrate from that part of Zaire that was once called the Belgian Congo. And at the very end of this day-long celebration, this very old man stood up to give a speech. He said, I'm going to die soon, and I need to tell you something now that no other living person knows. He went on to explain that when the first white missionaries came to the Belgian Congo, his people didn't know whether to believe their message or whether to trust them or not. They didn't, they didn't know what to do. So they devised a plan secretly to poison the missionaries and watch them die. So just imagine over the weeks and months that unfolded, one by one, adults and children became ill and died and were buried until over the course of many months, all the missionaries had been wiped out. And it was when his people saw how these missionaries died that they embraced the message of the gospel. Listen, it was when they saw how these people lived and then died with grace that they decided to believe the message of the gospel. The missionaries had no idea what was happening. They were totally oblivious to what was happening to them. They didn't know why they were, they didn't know they were being poisoned. They didn't know why they were dying. But their faithfulness to the Lord convinced the people that they'd come to minister to that their message was true. The message was true. Their deaths validated their message. We read this. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus may not actually ask you to die for him, and probably not this week. Maybe. I don't know. But he most assuredly is asking you to lay down your life for him. That part is clear in Scripture. And it seems to me that to actually die in some ways would be easier than to lay down your life. Because that's a daily thing that we have to do again and again and again. So God saves you. And then he fills you with his Holy Spirit. And then he invites you to live passionately for him in a world where almost everything around you is inviting you to be unfaithful to him. (laughs) Yeah, maybe to live for him is going to be harder than to just die. And for these missionaries, their deaths validated their message. My question for you this morning, follower of Jesus, is this. Will the way in which you live your life validate yours? Father, would you pound these truths into our hearts with the gentle hammer of your love. You know exactly how much pressure to apply to each one of us as we think about how ugly our lives were before we came to know you and how clean we've been made by the blood of the lamb. Lord, would you renew our sense of excitement and joy and, um, 
and just appreciation at what you've done in forgiving us of our sins so that we be motivated to go with the message of the gospel and to share our testimony with those who do not yet know you. Father, we want to be obedient. We want to celebrate your love for us and we want to make you known to those who are lost. Give us grace today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.